or assignment, depending on your outlook, of reading Romeo and Juliet by Shakespeare. Um, in the second act of the play is where one of the most famous quotations is found from that play. Juliet speaking, talking to herself on her balcony, not knowing that Romeo is standing below listening. She says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. At that moment, she is pondering the fact that she belonged to the Capulet family and he belonged to the Montagues, two rival families. And this accident of birth hindered them from getting married. What difference did two names make? No matter what his name, Romeo was still her love. What's in a name? There are individuals in the Bible narrative, if you were to ask that question, they would answer with one word, everything, everything. For some of it had to do with their birth. In Genesis 29 and 30, for example, where you read the competition that's going on between Jacob's two wives, who happen to be sisters, and one's fertile and one's not so fertile, and this thing that is going on, and as they give birth to children and their handmaidens who become concubines give birth to children, they give specific names to them, giving credit to God in some way or another. And when uh, Rachel finally has a child, the Scripture said, Then God remembered Rachel, God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my reproach. So she named him Joseph. Named him Joseph. Some names were the result of a life-changing event. Jacob wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord. And his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. Simon, Simon Johnson, Simon son of John is what the King James says, we would call him Simon Johnson. The day that he was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew, remember Jesus said to him, you are Simon, but you will be Peter. You are a reed moving in the wind, but you will become a rock. Gabriel told Mary and Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Names are important. Last Sunday morning we talked about the fact God knows your name. He knows your name. He knows where you're at. He knows what you need. More than that, he has the power to meet every need that you have. This morning we embark on chapter 17. We're not going to finish it. I know that's a surprise, but we're not going to finish it. In our last two messages, we talked about the birth of a boy named Ishmael. The product of a scheme suggested by Sarai to her husband Abram in order to help God fulfill his promise to make Abram the father of a multitude. They had been on the faith journey for 10 years. No children. 
So using the wisdom of the culture and the era of that time, a common practice in the worldly culture was to give the servant girl as a second wife to the husband, and that child will be called the child of the first wife who was barren. So Sarai says, take Hagar to be your wife. And he did. Not the smartest thing he'd ever did. In fact, it's probably the worst thing he ever did. And she conceives. When Hagar becomes pregnant, she begins to despise her mistress, Sarai, and begins to show an attitude that upsets Sarah to the point that she takes vengeance and becomes very mean to her. So Hagar ran away, only to have God stop her. Where are you going? What are you doing? Go back and submit yourself to Sarai as her servant. And we read at the end of chapter 16, when Abram is 86 years old, he has a son through his second wife, and Ishmael is born. That's how chapter 16 ends. Now, there is a significant gap in the story between chapter 16 and chapter 17, which means there's a whole lot about this family situation that we don't know anything about. But I doubt that a blended family would be the right word. I think there's probably more like the more common name these days is a dysfunctional family as these two women and now this boy who's been born and God said his temperament will be that of a wild donkey. You're not going to tell him what to do or if you tell him what to do, he will do just the opposite. When chapter 17 begins, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Chapter 17, Abram receives a fresh revelation from God. And he's 99. 99 minus 86 is, no mathematicians in the room, 13 years. 13 years have gone by since we left that story. Um, there's no recorded conversations between God and Abram. That doesn't mean there weren't any. There's just none that God wanted Moses to write about. No information about that period. It's now 24 years since God first called him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation and give to you a great land. 24 years have gone by. 13 years, give or take, since God cut that covenant, that blood covenant, by having Abraham... Um, kill those five animals and split them and, and God walked through there and said, may this happen to me if I don't keep my promises to you. Now he's 99 years old, Sarai is 89 years old and still childless. 
God appears to him, is what it says. I find that interesting. Chapter 12, God spoke to him. Chapter 13, God spoke to him. Chapter 15, God spoke and then gave him a vision. But we come to chapter 17, somehow God appears to him. And Moses said, this is what happens. God appeared and God said, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Now last week we saw that Hagar coined a new name for God. She called him El Roi, the God who sees. But in this case, it's God himself who comes to Abram and says, I am God Almighty. Now, we are familiar with that terminology because we've been reading the Bible for a day or two. But this is the first time that that phrase appears in the Pentateuch, in the, in the book of Genesis. But it's definitely not the last. At least 48 times in the Old Testament, this name appears, God Almighty. Throughout the whole scripture, somebody's counted 60 times that we read about God Almighty. God Almighty is two Hebrew words, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. El being the Hebrew word for God. And Shaddai means the Almighty. It means the all-powerful. It means the all-sufficient. God who can do anything and meet any need. El Shaddai, the all-powerful, all-sufficient God who can do anything and meet any need. It speaks of God's sovereignty. It speaks of his exhaustless bounty. I used to sing a song as a solo, He Giveth More Grace. And the chorus says, His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. El Shaddai. El Shaddai. If you were in church back in the 80s, you remember Michael Card wrote a song that became very popular. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Elyon Adonai. Um, and it was recorded by a, a number of artists. He is God Almighty. That is saying he's the infinite one. The infinite one. We know that he's eternal but he is infinite in every way. He's infinite. He's the God that makes things happen by his majestic power and might. There is nothing that God cannot do. Seems like we sang that a little while ago. And I didn't choose the songs, okay? There's nothing that he cannot do. There's at least two things that God is saying to Abram when he comes and said, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. He's saying number, number one here, which is point number two in your notes, El Shaddai has the power to keep every one of his promises. 
El Shaddai has the power to keep every one of his promises. Abram, I promised you a son. I promised you a multitude of children's 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 children. Because remember, he said, look at the dust. You'll have that many. Look at the stars of the heaven. If you can count them, you can count your children and your children's children. God said, I will make it happen. I am God Almighty. There is no need for you to give up in despair. There's no need for you to try to use your puny thoughts to come up with a way to scale down the promise and fulfill it by your own power. I am El Shaddai. The second thing, point number three, El Shaddai is faithful to perform every word he has spoken. Not only does he have the power to do it, but he's faithful to do it. He is faithful to do it. In Numbers 23, God gives a message to a heathen king through the prophet Balaam. You remember that story. Balak hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. And every time that Balaam opens his mouth, he blesses the Israelites. And Balak's getting really upset. In one of the conversations in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is faithful to keep his word. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, So my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 24 years since God made the promise. We don't know if Abram was waffling. Most of us would be. Did I really hear God? Is it really going to happen? God Almighty appears. Nothing is impossible for me, Abram. Your age is not an issue. Her age is not an issue. In fact, I've read several Bible scholars who believe that God held it out this long so they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God did it and not them. Because you'll read later on in the New Testament where, in fact, you read just a couple more chapters where they thought they were as good as dead when it came to procreation. But God restored their youth. El Shaddai is not hindered by what we call the laws of nature. He is free to rule over them and to overrule them. One scholar that I read this week said this, Elohim is the God who creates nature so that it is and supports it so that it continues. El Shaddai is the God who compels nature to do what is contrary to itself. God can interrupt it. For example, comes to my mind just 
as I'm talking. You remember the day that Joshua looked up at the sun and said, God, we need the sun to stand still in order to finish this war. Have you ever thought about what that means to the solar system, the Milky Way? If the earth, the sun didn't stand still, the earth did. It's a wonder nobody fell off. God can interrupt it. All things are possible. That's what the angel said to Mary. How can this be? With men, it's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. So, before I go on, I want you to hear for you and me today. He is still El Shaddai. He is still God Almighty. He is the powerful one, the all-sufficient one for you and me. I, I want you to personalize that. I want you to grab a hold of that. Because we forget. When we are in the midst of whatever's going on in our life that we didn't want to happen, we forget. He is El Shaddai. You see, the way we live is determined by what we think of God. The way we live is determined by what we think of God. What you truly believe about God is the most important thought in your life. I probably should have put that in your notes in bold red. What you truly believe about God is the most important thought in your life. If you see and know him as El Shaddai, the God Almighty, you will live a life of fullness, seeing the promises of God coming to fruition in a perfect way, in perfect timing. If you see him as anything less than Almighty, your soul and will shrink and your faith will be neutralized. The Holy Spirit wants to remind you He's God Almighty in your life if you allow Him to be. There's nothing beyond the scope of His power. There's nothing going on in your life He does not see. There's nothing happening in your life that He cannot redeem and cause it to work together for your good and for His purpose. He is God Almighty, El Shaddai. Number four, Abram is reminded of his responsibility. He is reminded of his responsibility. With revelation comes responsibility. I read somewhere in this book, To Whom Much is Given, Much is Required. Genesis 17.1 said, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me. Interesting choice of words. When God chose the verb for this sentence, he chose the word walk. He could have said crawl, skip, run, 
hurry along, but walk. Walking is an action that takes a person from one point to another point by simply placing one foot in front of the other consistently, repetitively. Walking is sustainable over the long haul as compared to sprinting. There was a day I could sprint a 440. Today, if I sprint from here to the back door, You might have to pick me up, but I can walk a long ways still. Thank the Lord for that. Earlier in Genesis, we read that Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. But Abram is commanded to walk before God. Walk before God. There's a connotation to that word. Walk for God or walk in regard to God. In other words, live before God in the way that is living for God. Living with regard to Him. Living for His glory. Walk before me. For those of you who were in the military or in the high school marching band, you know something about the leader setting a cadence and putting all into marching and left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And you're all supposed to do it the same time in the same way. Um, Band director wasn't impressed with my cadence. We are told to walk before God knowing this. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. To walk before God is to walk with this understanding. I give an account. There will be a day of reckoning where I will give an account. Because God sees everything I do. Scripture tells me he knows everything I think. Now, that's not scary if you have a heart after God. If you have a heart that's, I'm going to walk before God to the best of my ability my, my, by his grace. And if I, if I mess up, I know he'll forgive me if I confess that because he said he would. Abram is commanded to be blameless. Be blameless. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And what does that mean? There's not one of us, including Abram, who has reached the place of perfection yet. We all sin at different times. There's those sins of commission, the things we do that we should not have do. There's the sins of omission, not doing the things that we should have done. We all sin. Times that we do not do what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. We say, no, let them do it. We are like Moses. I'm not capable. Find somebody else. The Bible is clear. There's none righteous, not one except for Jesus. 
But to be blameless means to be single-hearted, sincere, and wholly devoted to God. doesn't mean I've reached perfection, but it means that I have this, this heart that I want to serve God. I want to be devoted to God by His grace to the best of my ability. To, to be blameless is to live by what is called the Shema in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. When Jesus was challenged by a New Testament lawyer, what's the greatest commandment of all the commandments? And there are a lot of commandments. Jesus responded with Mark chapter 12, verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. One of the other gospels says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. To be blameless before God is to, well, John put it this way in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, if we walk open before the Lord, we walk vulnerable before the Lord, knowing that he sees everything, we allow him to see everything and to speak to everything. To be blameless is not to be sinless, but to have a heart that is pursuing righteousness that he imputes to us. It's keeping short accounts. When I sin, when I fail to obey, I confess it, I repent it. When I fall, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I get up and keep on going. David goes down in history as a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect. He is far from it. He had moments when he allowed the flesh to take over. But he had a heart. I I want to pursue God. I want to be in God's presence. God created me a clean heart. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. God, I want to live a life that brings honor to you. And when I mess up, I cry out, God, forgive me. In order to experience the fullness of God's promises, we are responsible to walk before him with integrity. We are responsible to walk before him with integrity. Be blameless. Be blameless. It's like Jesus speaking to the woman in John chapter 8. Remember they brought this woman, the Pharisees brought this woman. They said we caught her in the act of adultery. wonder how they did that. And where's the dude? Anyway. Jesus, the law says to stone her to death. What do you say? Thinking they've trapped him in a theological conundrum that he can't get out of. Remember, Jesus bent down and he began to write on the ground with his finger. 
And they kept pressing him, well, what do you say? What do you, what do you, you got no answer? What's the deal? And he stood up and he said, okay, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And then he stooped down and began to write with his finger on the ground again. And the scripture says, and they began to drop their stones and walk away. And when they were all gone, he says to the woman, where's your accusers? I have none. Well, then neither do I condemn you. And don't forget these words. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Go and from now on, don't do that. From now on, have a heart that walks in obedience to God. I forgive you. Now live in the power of that forgiveness. The same grace that God gives to you to forgive your sins is the grace that gives to you to live in victory over those sins. And that's what God is saying to Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Seems to be a condition, this covenant. You need to walk that way, that I may make my covenant between you and may multiply you greatly. God has come to reiterate the covenant that he's already made with him. This is not a new covenant, but it's more of a definition of the covenant they've already made with a little more emphasis now on Abram's part of the covenant. Walk before me, be blameless, that I may be able to bless you to the fullness of that blessing that I have promised. Verse 3, Abram fell on his face. Abram fell on his face. The secret to a blameless walk before God is personal worship of God. <coughs> the secret to a blameless walk before God is personal worship of God. He prostrated himself in the presence of God. He took the posture of one in total submission. He took the posture of a slave or a servant in the presence of the king. He gave proper awe and respect to God Almighty. True worship is about the surrender of my will to God's will. True worship is about the surrender of my will to God's will. It's not what songs you sing. It's not what kind of songs you sing. It's the surrender of my will to God's will. That's what Jesus modeled for us as he lived as the Son of Man. He said, the words I do and the deeds I do, they're of the Father. They're not my own. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, have the same mind or attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he emptied himself, became of no reputation, and became obedient, even obedient unto death. God appeared. He revealed himself. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Abram bowed himself to the ground in declaration, yes, you are, and I'm not going to resist you in any way. Here I am. Speak to me. Verse said, Behold, my covenant is with you, 
you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Point number six, God Almighty reassured Abram of their relationship. He reassured Abram of their relationship. My covenant is with you. If I've counted right, in chapter 17, God says my covenant 11 times. My covenant or everlasting covenant. As I said a moment ago, it's not a new covenant. It's it's the same one we talked about a couple weeks ago. In fact, it goes back to Ur of the Chaldees when God said, come where I show you and I will make you a great nation. God has reminded Abram, I've made a promise. It's going to come to pass. And to encourage you of the reality of that, I'm going to change your name. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. He changed his name Abram, from Abram to Abraham. The late Nahum Sarna, a Jewish Bible scholar, wrote these words. In the psychology of the ancient Near Eastern world, a name was not merely a convenient means of identification, but was intimately bound up with the very essence of being inextricably intertwined with personality. That name said who you are. We will see that for sure when we come to the story of Jacob, the supplanter. You remember he was given the name Jacob at his birth because he was one of the twins, but he wasn't born first, but he wanted to be. When Esau came from the womb, Jacob had a hold of his heel trying to pull him back me first. And there comes a point in time where God changes his name. You read in the book of, of, of Kings and the book of Daniel, kings were given authority in that day to change people's names. And they would do that. Now, if I started changing some of your names, or if, you, if when I dedicate a baby, if I say, well, they call him this, but I'm going to call him that, I might get in trouble. But kings had that authority and that power. And God has that authority and that power to change your name. We read in the Bible where names were changed because of life transformation, character and destiny were changed. Remember, Naomi went down to Moab, her husband died, her sons died, and now she has nobody. And she says, call me Mara because God, in fact, she said, Almighty has dealt with me bitterly. She wanted to change her name because of the circumstances of her life. We already mentioned Simon Peter. How about Saul of Tarsus? 
Somewhere along the line, they began to call him Paul instead of Saul. God Almighty says to Abram, because you will soon be a father and Sarah a mother, I'm going to change your name for the rest of time and eternity. Abram means exalted father. Means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. The exalted father, one of the Bible scholars says that that was probably referring to God the Father, the exalted father. But when it becomes Abraham, now he's saying you're the father of a multitude. I wonder how that went down with the people in Abraham's entourage, his family, his two wives and Ishmael and and all of his servants because he had lots of them according to Scripture. And one day at dinner he says, "Um, I'm changing my name because God told me to. You're going to now call me the father of a multitude. He's got one son that that's not the one God wanted. Wonder what they thought about. He's 99. We'll give him a break. (laughs) He did indeed become a father of nations. He was the father of Ishmael, who became the father of nations as well. And all the Arab nations come down from Ishmael. Later on, his grandsons Esau and Jacob come of age, and Esau becomes the father of another nation, and Jacob becomes the father of Israel because God changed his name. God promised Abraham he would become father to kings. He would become father to kings. A king shall come, and kings shall come from you. A thousand years later, David became the second king of Israel. And God said to David, I will give to you a dynasty that will last forever because one of your seed, one from your line who's going to be on the throne forever. Matthew's gospel begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ was in the lineage of King David, born a prince. Revelation tells this about Jesus. And this was first predicted back in Genesis 17.1, or 17.3. Revelation 19.16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. That was part of the promise that God gave to Abram when he said, I will bless all the earth through you because Jesus, the King of kings, was going to come down through that line. In the 17th chapter of Genesis, Eleven times God makes this statement, I will. 
I will, I will make, I will give, I will establish, I will do this. In verse 9, God gives Abraham's sign of the covenant for him and all his sons. God gives Abraham's sign of the covenant for him and all of his sons. When I say a sign, when I perform a marriage ceremony, there's a point where I say, do you have rings? May I have those rings? These rings are a symbol of the vows you're about to make today. They're just a reminder of the vows that you made. And I tell them that. Where you wear them, whether you're together or apart, may they be a reminder of these sacred vows that you made. It's, it's a symbol. It's a, it's a sign. Verse 9, And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So my covenant... So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God says circumcision was the sign of covenant with Abraham. When God made a covenant with Noah, Noah got it a whole lot easier. God put a rainbow in the sky. Uh, the rainbow existed before, most likely. But God says, I'm going to put a new significance to that rainbow. It'll be a sign of what I promised. If you've been reading through the book of Exodus, there was a sign of the covenant for the Israelites to keep. And it was the Sabbath day. Keeping the Sabbath day was a sign that they were in covenant with God. Now, this covenant in between Noah and Moses at Mount Sinai, God said circumcision. It's not something new. The Egyptians were circumcising centuries before the Israelites, centuries before Abraham. But God said, I'm going to take that, what is already in existence, and I'm going to make it a sign for my people. God said, I'm commanding you to do this act as a sign of your commitment to me. It's a sign of your commitment. We are in covenant. Now, there was no salvation in the act of circumcision. It was merely a sign. Like the ring. God was very serious about them following through with the sign. To not obey the command was to break covenant. Well, it's been suggested that one of the reasons that God shows circumcision at Abraham's sign of covenant is because circumcision has to do with Abraham's power of procreation. This is the area of life where he messed up most royally. 
doing what he thought was expedient in the flesh, having a child with Hagar, helping God's plan along. The result was the birth of Ishmael. (coughs) And that consequence will not go away until the last trumpet sounds and Jesus said, time is no more. Man's best plans and strength of will will never bring about God's promises. Man's best plans and strength of will will not bring about God's promises. So Abraham's circumcision was an act of repentance and a sign of dependence on God for the promise. Yeah, we messed up. God, I'm sorry about that. And he's had 13 years to deal with this wild donkey kid. He was probably really repentant. Sign of dependence on God for the promise. And it was a sign that would never go away. A permanent marker on the body of every male born to the Israelites. God has made a covenant. And our part of the covenant is to live in dependence and submission to him. The rite of circumcision is a reminder that covenants are sealed through blood. They are sealed through blood. We're not going to get graphic about this, but I want you to know there's a little bit of blood involved in this process because you're cutting skin away and we'll just leave it at that, okay? The rite of circumcision was a reminder that God chose them. They didn't choose him. God chose them. He didn't choose them. They didn't choose him. And he chose them to be a holy people. God chose them, and he chose them to be a holy people, a people separated unto him. The Canaanite people as a whole were very immoral. God has called Abraham and his offspring to be different. He calls them to walk before him in fear, the fear of God. He calls them to love him with all their heart, to worship him alone, so that they would be in a position to enjoy the fullness of the blessing of the covenant as Abraham's children. The rite of circumcision was intended to be a sign of one's heart for God. It was to be a sign of what was happening in somebody's heart. I have committed my heart. I've committed my way to God. And this is the sign of that. What happened over time, and a relatively short period of time, the Hebrews made circumcision the point of their salvation. Just get circumcised, and that's all that matters. In the book of Deuteronomy... Moses, being used of God to speak to the people who were going to go into the promised land shortly, he said in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 10, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Chapter 30, same book. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, that so you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, 
O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Romans 8, or Romans 2.28 For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what does it mean to circumcise my heart? We're talking about my heart, that place where I make decisions, where I make choices. We would call it our free will. Our free will. We are born with a heart or free will that says, I want it my way. Burger King, you know, years ago had that slogan, pandering to our, have it your way. Have it your way. We want everything our way. We are all born with a certain amount of selfishness. And it seems that in our culture, it just fans that flame of selfishness in our heart. The rite of circumcision is a reminder, there's no way but God's way. There's no way but God's way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He did not say, I am a way, I am a truth, or I am a life. That's what the world wants you to believe, that he's just one of the ways, he's just one of the truths. Jesus said, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. When we speak those words into the culture today, you know what happens? They label us as far-right fanatics, radicals, who need to be eliminated. We are called intolerant. They call it hate speech. And unfortunately, there are places in the church world where that is infiltrated. And people who call themselves Christians, well, a guy named Ian Duguid notes that many people today approach God as if they're interviewing him for a job position as their personal deity in their life. If that man in the sky fits the job's description, it would be a non-judgmental, accepting of everybody and everything, and gives us the privilege to choose right and wrong for ourselves, he's got the job. Lucky God. That's not the way it works. He's God Almighty. He's the way, the truth, and the life. God's desire is to bless you God's desire is to give you an abundant life. I didn't say a carefree life, but an abundant life. God's plan for you and me is to live as overcomers, 
to live as children of God, to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God told Abraham, circumcise yourself and all the men and boys in your household. It's verse 26. We didn't get there, but Abraham obeyed that day. That day. And only men would understand the magnitude of that day. It is so easy to fall into the trap that the Israelites did, to make our signs and symbols the source of our salvation instead of commitment to follow Jesus with my whole heart. We believe that every believer needs to be baptized in water because Jesus said to be. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. But being baptized in that water will not save you. That water does not wash away your sin. What washes away your sins? It's the blood of Jesus. That's a symbol. It's a sign. I believe that Jesus died for me and that His blood has washed me from my sins. And when He died on the cross... I died with him and I rose again with him, a new person, a new life, to follow him and to live for him. But to be dunked in the tank and to go away and never acknowledge him again, you just took a bath with no soap. And nothing got clean. We believe that we ought to do what Jesus told us to do, is to eat the bread and drink the cup of what we call communion. But if you're drinking that cup and eating that bread to get saved, that's not going to happen. It's Jesus who saves me and my faith in Jesus. It's just a sign of the fact I believe that he did it for me and I'm receiving it by grace and by faith. And it's a declaration that I want to follow him. I want to be committed to him. I want to walk. We call it communion for a reason. He lives in me. I live in him. Think about physical circumcision. One and done thing. Did it once. Can't do it again. When we talk about circumcising the heart, I don't think that it's a one-and-done thing. I think it's something that's an ongoing. Because all the voices in the world it's easy to become complacent with status quo. It's easy to find yourself actually drifting away. I read in a book this week, and I don't remember which one it was because I read three different books this week, maybe four. But if you're not going forward, there's, there's, there's no place to be static in my Christian walk. I'm either going forward or I'm drifting downstream. 
if we're not careful, if we don't keep my will circumcised, circumcised means that it's not my way, Lord, but your way. We can find ourselves in the same place that the church at Ephesus did in Romans, or Revelation chapter 2. As Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, he commends them for numerous things. Their theology is great. But he said, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If I will not, if uh, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. That's why it's important to read those scriptures, circumcise your heart. So many things wanting my attention and wanting my affections. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but if those things take my affections away from my Lord and my commitment to my Lord, they needed to be cut away. Cut away. So there's two messages today. One is whatever you're going through, He's God Almighty. Number two is Make sure you keep him as God Almighty. You understand that? Is that clear enough? We're going to stand and sing a prayer, one of my favorite prayers. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. And as we sing this song, I want to encourage us to say, Lord, search me. Search my heart. Is there something there that I need to circumcise today? Something I need to cut away? Something I need to give to the Holy Spirit to cut away? And if so, make it a point of prayer for yourself. Would you stand as we sing, if you can? Or if you want to kneel as we sing?